hello, and it is an honor to be part of the roster of speakers for this most relevant topic. Let's talk politics and religion, two things I was told never to talk about in serious company or on a date, but here we are in this very peculiar time in our American political system. So it is very relevant that this lectureship series has been put on, and thank you to the leadership of the Mission Hills Congregation uh, for tackling these subjects um, very timely and very needed. Hebrews chapter 11, the 22nd verse. Hebrews chapter 11, the 22nd verse. I just have a few scattered remarks from Paul's writings in Hebrews. It says, by faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. When I began to decide and narrow down what I wanted my few scattered remarks to be, as a black male, I began to think about these peculiar times that our nation is going through. And I remembered a man who had a dream. And this man was considered a savior of his people. This man believed in God's promise to make his people great and equal. This man kept his people encouraged throughout their sufferings of enslavement and systematic segregation. He was treated unjustly and unfairly by the very people he was trying to help. And right down to the end of his life, on the eve of his death, he was encouraging his people to not forget about God's promise of a better place. In his last recorded words, he alluded to the promise. Since in his life was soon end, he told his people that he might not make it to the promised land with them. But one day, they would as a people indeed see this promised land. And that was his dream. And there's no great leader who lost more or suffered more greatly because of his dreams than did Joseph. In Hebrews chapter 11, Paul's famous catalog of faith all-stars, he selects the most brilliant instances of faith examples from the lives of some great men. He tells us about Noah who accepted the daunting task of building an ark in obedience to God. He mentions by faith Moses, how he stood up to Pharaoh and brought his people out of slavery and crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. Paul in this chapter mentions Gideon, Barak, Samson, David, and Samuel, and the other great prophets, and how these great men by faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, 
obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, were made strong out of weakness, and they became mighty in war, all because of their faith. But when Paul mentions Joseph on this list, he merely mentions Joseph's prearranged burial plans. He simply mentions the instance where a dying old Joseph from his deathbed suggested to his people what he wanted them to do with his bones after he died. Always felt Paul. Shortchanged Joseph here. I was confused as to why this was the example Paul chose to represent Joseph's faith. I would hardly have expected that Paul would have mentioned the dying scene of Joseph's life as the most illustrious proof of Joseph's faith in God. That an eventful life as Joseph had, perhaps the most interesting in all of sacred scripture, I felt Paul was neglectful to Joseph's legacy. Joseph's life abounded with instances and incidents that Paul could have used to tell about Joseph's faith. Paul could have easily said that by faith Joseph overcame the betrayal of his brothers, throwing him in a pit and selling him into slavery. Paul most certainly could have offered up by faith Joseph resisted the temptation of riches and sexual temptation and stayed pure despite all the opportunities to be a total player. Paul could have mentioned by faith Joseph sat out an unjust prison sentence and because of his faithfulness got paroled from prison and was placed in Pharaoh's palace. By faith, Paul could have told us that Joseph faced many trials. He was often down but never out over family conflicts, over personal temptation, over adverse circumstances, but by faith, Joseph was the victor. But none of that is mentioned to us in Hebrews 11. So the fact that Paul only mentions the commandment Joseph gave concerning what to do with his bones was considered somewhat disturbing to me. The fact that this along among all the great things of Joseph's life is singled out as the most illustrious proof of his faith is very baffling to me. So I needed to find out what was so special about Joseph's bones. So I began to investigate. Forensic pathology suggests that there are a lot of things you can discover about studying someone's bones. You can find out about their lives and you can figure out their nationality. In other words, you can figure out who they are, and you can figure out who their people are. And when I began to study the bones of Joseph, I began to figure out what kind of person he was, and Paul's mentioning of his bones start to make sense. And when I discover the story of Joseph's people, how they were enslaved, they were oppressed, and they were picked out to be picked on, but yet they endured it all to keep a promise while struggling to get to a promised land. I start to see why Paul was up to when he lifted up Joseph's bones as a symbol of his faith. So my topic for this lecture is they remembered to carry his bones. They remembered to carry his bones. Besides Paul mentioning of Joseph's bones in Hebrews, they are mentioned three other times in the Bible. The first reference occurs in the very last book of Genesis. It says, so Joseph made the Israelites swear a promise. He said, God will surely come to your aid 
and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Genesis 50 and 25. Then there's a brief mention in Exodus, just as the Israelites are about to leave their bondage in, Israel, in Egypt. It says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place, Exodus 13 and 9. We hear no more of Joseph's bones until well after the death of Moses and years later after the death of Joshua. When the Israelites have indeed conquered the promised land and just as the book of Joshua is closing and without context, we are told the bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought from Egypt, were buried at Shechem, Joshua 24 and 32. But what does Moses carrying the bones from Egypt and then the Israelites burying them in Shechem have to do with faith? It seems that the passage at the end of Joshua is, 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 is much more than the Bible tidying up some loose ends about the bones. No, the Bible seems to be signaling, signaling to us to pay attention to a story of significance, one that opens with a promise about Joseph's bones and ends with the fulfillment of that promise by his people. Because the fate of Joseph and his bones are central to the meaning of a larger story about God and his faithfulness to his people and his people's faithfulness toward God. To understand why these bones are a significant faith symbol, you must first understand the why of the promise. And then we will understand the who of the promise. And then we will delve into the where of the promise. The why of the promise. Why Joseph had faith. In the case of Joseph, his faith led him to an open display of confidence in God's promise. On his deathbed, he said, I die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, this land of bondage. He also said he will bring you to a land which he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph, having thus declared his faith, practically showed that he meant it, that it was not a matter of form, but a matter of his heart. I do not know in what better way he could have shown his practical belief in the fact that God would bring his people out of Egypt than by saying, keep my bones, never bury them until you yourselves get to Canaan, the promised land, having left Egypt forever and taken possession over this land of milk and honey and this land of freedom that has been promised to you. Take my bones there when you get there. Though Joseph might not have foreseen the wonders of the Red Sea crossing or how Pharaoh and his chairs would be swallowed up there. And though he did not predict the wilderness and the fiery cloudy pillar and the heavens drop in manna, yet his faith was firm that by some means God's promise to his people that one day they would see Canaan, the promised land, would be fulfilled. And moreover, notice that Joseph having faith in God, he would encourage the faith of others. But, you ask, what did Joseph do to encourage the faith of others? Why, he left his bones to be a standing sermon to the children of Israel. We read that they were embalmed and put into a coffin in Egypt, and thus they were never, ever away from his people's keeping. What did that say? 
that every time an Israelite thought of the bones of Joseph, he must certainly thought we are to go out of this country one day. We are about to be out of slavery one day. His body would also serve as an encouragement for when the taskmasters began to afflict the pain and the whip and the labor increased on the desolate people, their hope decreased. The despondent Israelite would say, I shall never come out of Israel. Oh, but others would say, Joseph believed we would. There are his bones still unburied. He has left us the assurance of his confidence that God would in due time bring up his people out of the house of bondage. It seems to me that Joseph had thought of this device as being the best thing in the world he could do to keep the Israelites perpetually in remembrance that they were strangers and sojourners and to encourage them in the belief that in due time they would be delivered from the house of bondage and settled in a land that flowed with milk and honey. Improbabilities was nothing to him, nor impossibilities either. God said it, and Joseph believed it. Now let's look at the who of the promise, who Joseph had faith in. So Joseph gives the promise to his people to take his bones to the promised land with them. This significant part is not that Joseph had faith in God, but that he had an amazing faith in his people. There's a story of a little girl who's flying on an airplane and the airplane is experiencing terrible turbulence. And so the pilot gets on to the loudspeaker and says, buckle up, do not leave your seat. We're about to hit some rocky air. And as people are beginning to freak out, there's a little girl just sitting in the front row playing with her doll, combing her doll's hair. The adult sitting next to her goes, little girl, aren't you afraid of the turbulence? Aren't you afraid of the storm? Aren't you afraid that the plane might go down? And the little girl looked up at the stranger sitting next to her. She goes, no, because my dad is flying this plane. Joseph was a lot like that little girl. He could rest easy knowing that one of his own, his father, someone that he could trust had his back. Consider this. In the story of Joseph, he dies roughly 400 years before the Exodus. Thus, the Israelites are revealed at the end of Joshua as having gone through four centuries to adhere to a promise made to Joseph. During the long years in Egypt, the bones were not lost, forgotten, or neglected by Joseph's people. In the Exodus, the Israelites, under Moses' guidance and without instruction from God to do so, takes up Joseph's bones with them as they fled Egypt. Even though they had to leave Egypt so fast that their bread was unleavened, they carried those bones even as Pharaoh's army pursued them into a parted Red Sea. They carried those bones after the death of Moses. They carried those bones as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. And then all of a sudden we learn at the end of Joshua, and remember Joshua is now dead as well. So without identifiable leadership, Joseph's people bury his bones in the promised land, fulfilling their promise to Joseph. Joseph handed his people a promise because he had faith that his people would see it to the end. He knew that his people were strong enough. 
He knew that his people were smart enough. He knew that his people were brave enough and faithful enough to reach those promised places. So because he knew that about the integrity of his people, he knew that his bones would make it to where he knew his people were headed. And when I think of this miraculous feat, I can't help but to think of my people, my black people. It makes me think of my people. It makes me think of our Josephs, the leaders and the warriors who believed in the promise for a better tomorrow but never saw it, who died still in the grips of racial segregation, who left this world before they got to see the land of freedom bought by their own blood. And like Joseph, they have given their people, not just black people, but all righteous people a promise that when we achieve these levels of freedom, when we achieve these levels of, uh, of liberty, we do not forget their legacy that we take with them to us to our new fields of freedom and opportunities as a reminder that we didn't achieve this on our own, but that we were with God and God was with us and that we were faithful to him. But back to the Israelites. It is not uncommon to read the Bible and think that these people were a bunch of screw-ups. They are people who built the golden calf, a people who can hardly be trusted for a minute before they violate God's commandments. Incessantly, they talk mess about God and Moses. They turn to Baal, and, the, and they lack the courage and the faith to do battle for Canaan and the promised land. They are wandering around in the wilderness without a home because of their own wickedness and poor decisions. And many times it seems that God is ready to destroy their community as a whole. The same can be said about black people. It's not uncommon to read the newspapers and watch the news and think that black folks are a bunch of wicked screw-ups. We are the people who have more men in prison than we do in universities. We are people that is 84% more likely that a child born of black blood will end up in the state pen than at Penn State. So it makes one wonder why did our forefathers trust us with this promise of something better? Because they knew that we were descendants of a long line of survivors. They knew how much faith and strength we had. They know that we were not the descendants of lazy and wayward people. And they knew that despite the hell we would catch as we marched toward our promised land, we had the genetics to survive and reach that goal. Well, what evidence do we have to suggest that we are up to the task of fulfilling their promise? Well, consider this. Although the ships that brought slaves to these shores had suggestive names such as the Liberty, the Desire, the Brotherhood, and even the good ship Jesus, their human cargo had no such outlook. Shoved in and shackled together for weeks in the putrid bellies of these foul ships, those who survived the journey were unloaded unto this country, besieged and bewildered. They were shoved into auction blocks where they were poked and prodded, beaten and bartered, and were delivered into the most hopeless form of slavery known to human history. What made this form of slavery so depressingly unique is that it had no manumission, 
no exit clause. Every slave system throughout history, even back to the Hebrew system, has provided some type of escape clause by which the enslaved could earn their freedom. This was not the case with American slave codes. And as a result, the slaves were forced to labor day after depressing day, month after dreary month, year after hopeless year, decade after downtrodden decade, without knowing hope or possessing the possibility of something better. They lived in tattered tents. They were fed like animals at grimy troughs. They slept on muddy floors and rose each morning to function at the mercy of malicious masters. They lived and died in the grasp of misery without a sliver of hope that captivity's icy hand would one day release its hardened grip. And their brief longevity contained no rainbow of deliverance, no ray of sunshine, and no light at the end of the tunnel. But instead of us hearing them shout, I give up, we hear them instead singing up above my head, I hear freedom in the air. After the days of the Civil War and during its reconstruction period, over four million of our freed people were thrust into a society without any skills except the ones they exercised in servitude. Poverty and pain, their consistent companion, they were set adrift in the land, left to wander the country without protection or promise of something better. And in many cases, our people faced an existence as free people more harsh and cold than the life they experienced as slaves. And not unlike the Israelites during their wandering phase, our people had no Moses to lead them, no cloud by day, nor pillar of fire by night to guide them through their new barren wilderness. But instead of them throwing in the towel, they threw up their hands and saying, Father, I stretch my hands to thee. No other help I know, and if thou withdraw thy hand from thee, O Lord, whither shall we go? And during the industrial years of the 1920s and 30s, as our people began a new exodus to the north, pushed there by nature's drought and human cruelty on one hand, and pulled there by the promise of factory jobs and social freedom on the other, they made their way down south to down north only to find themselves unprepared for the cold winters of the region and the chilly reality of urban crime and poverty. And after that, the 50s and 60s that saw systematic discrimination that subjugated our people to the most inhumane separation that this world has ever seen, separate water fountains, white-only establishments, our people endured the biting dogs of militarized police force and the biting realities of poverty and pain forced on them by a compassionless government. But instead of them throwing punches or taking physical swings at their aggressors, they instead saying, swing low, sweet chariot, come forth to carry me home. Our people, the only minority race in the country brought here against its will, our people, the only racial group whose males were castrated for spite and lynched for sport, this group, so decreed by the Supreme Court by the Dred Scott case in 1857 of having no constitutional right that the white man is forced to honor, the only group of people in this country whose individuals, as voted by the Philadelphia Compromise of July 1877, were legally declared three-fifths a person, if you can even imagine that. But instead of them accepting the darkness of this cruel existence, instead you hear them singing this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine.
We are all the offspring of these great people. We are the sons and daughters of these mighty warriors of faith, these powerful servants of salvation. And just as Joseph trusted his people who would go through similar situations, our great leaders have entrusted all of us with the promise of achieving something greater. Something better on this glorious day. And how the Israelites carried the bones of Joseph as a reminder of God's faithfulness. We together as all people, black, white, brown, yellow, Methodists, Catholics, Baptists, Jews, Gentiles, all of us, we carry the bones of a Dr. Martin Luther King to remind us that we would rather die achieving the dream than live in a segregated racial nightmare. We carry the bones of Rosa Parks who would rather stand up for justice than to sit down to injustice. We all carry the bones of Mamie Till when after her 14-year-old son Emmett was brutally lynched by a gang of nasty white folks in Hatefield, Mississippi, Instead of calling for the murderer's head, she called for us to keep ours, saying we need to impress upon all people that when trouble rise on life's Richter scale, we must be anchored so deeply, and although we sway, we will not be toppled over. And although many things have swayed our faith in these recent days, and our reputation and threatened to destroy us as a people, we take confidence in knowing that we have never, ever been toppled over. Joseph entrusting his bones to his people was a deep sign that he trusted in God and he had great faith in his people. And like the Israelites, we all have proven through our survival of the most egregious hardship that any people has ever known that we have been given the promise of something better because God has trusted us with trouble and he has trusted us with tribulation. We can be depended on during despair and depression and we can be counted on through chaos and calamity. So looking now through the lens of their faithfulness to Joseph's promise, I think it is unfair to look at the Israelites as a bunch of screw-ups. And similarly, it is unfair for anyone, including ourselves, to label anyone different than us, black people, Hispanic people, than what we actually really are. We are strong, faithful, promise keepers. And lastly, we looked at the who of the faith. We looked at the why of the faith. Let us close by looking at the where of the faith. What is rather distinguishable to remember is that Joseph's bones were not buried as soon as they came into Canaan, nor were they buried during the long wars of Joshua with the various tribes. But it is not until the last verses of the book of Joshua, when nearly all the land had been finally conquered and the country had been divided into different tribes, and they had taken full possession of the promised land. Then we read that they buried the bones of Joseph in the field of Shechem, which is within Canaan, 
the land that was promised. What does that mean for us? It means that although we have our feet on promise soiled, we are in America, the land of the free. We cannot think that the journey is over. There is still some struggle and some people we need to get out of our promise. It is not just enough to arrive at this promised place. We have to fight to thrive in this new land. And although we have come from the toil of donkey backs to driving Cadillacs, there is still work to do. It means that although we have come from slaving in cotton gins to driving Mercedes Benz, we are not all the way there yet. And even though more of our young women are applying to Yale than getting booked in jail, we are still not there yet. And even though as a people, we have come from the outhouse of slavery to the White House of freedom, we have not yet achieved everything yet. So this reminds me, as election day nears, on the ballot is right and wrong. On the ballot is justice and injustice. On the battle, ballot is liberty and persecution. What side will we be on? Will we be trusted with the great promise to make this land more inhabitable, to make this land more free, to make this promised land more of that promised land? It is up to us now. It is up to us to fulfill the promise that has been given to us. We have been trusted with the promise that when right and wrong, good and evil is at our disposal, we always choose right. Well, just because we elected a black man a few elections ago, I think we got a little comfortable in thinking that we had achieved the promise. We falsely relaxed, thinking we had reached the promise point. And here it is, we should be reminded that although Joseph had made his way all the way up to Pharaoh's palace, his people were still suffering in the pits. No, we don't have to sit on the back of the buses anymore, but our young people are in the front of the prison pipeline. So there's still work that needs to be done. We no longer have to struggle under the heavy hand of petty masters, but our children are suffering without the guiding hand of present fathers. We still have work to do. And although we no longer sit in balconies at the top of movie theaters, but our students are ranking at the bottom of every academic subject area, there is still more conquering that we have to achieve as a people. Slavery was designed to subjugate us. Jim Crow was designed to decimate us. Prisons were designed to incarcerate us. This current administration has been designing schemes to separate us. But it is the truth and it is the activity 
and is the full participation of God's people, his promised people, that will liberate us. So as I close, I recall John 8.36. Those words calms us by saying that if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Freedom is at stake. Liberty is at stake this year. Decency is at stake this year. And if we all as God's chosen and promised people stand up and fight against this darkness, fight against this oppression, fight against these things that seek to reshackle us, our minds and our bodies, if we all fight back this year, we can defeat that darkness. We can stay out of this design systematic slavery that they are trying to impose because the sun has set us free. And when the sun sets us free, we are free indeed. So God's people can finally say, after this false election, free at last, free at last, Thank God Almighty, we are free at last.